Hi, Clint. Hi, Steve. How you doing? No, I'm doing all right. Good. <laughs> Tell me more about yourself. I am shorter than you would think, but still quite tall. <laughs> I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, Conversations with Game Developers. And today I'm talking to Clint Hawking, uh, who worked on the Splinter Cell series and Far Cry 2. How's it going, Clint? Good, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Good. It's good to see you. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Uh, we've we've known each other for a little while. I, I, I started out as... Our relationship started with me being a, a fanboy of... Uh, I saw one of your talks at GDC in like 2006, right? And that was the first time that I had 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 heard of you. Um, and you talked about you did a really good talk about like emergent gameplay, and and you introduced me to concepts of about you know like I don't know geeky stuff, the MDA framework, <laughs> yeah. and like yeah, sure. you know all, all that kind of stuff. And um, we corresponded a little bit over yeah. the years, and uh, I guess during that when when I first met you, you were kind of, I think, in the midst of Far Cry 2, or maybe it was even, it was before you'd started on it, because the talk was about Splinter Cell. Yeah. Um, but you, you, you've worked on, on those titles um, at Ubisoft, you know, a, a number of, of individual titles. So how did you get started working at Ubi? I mean, that was your first industry mm-hmm. job, right? Yep, yep. Um, I got... That's a that's a long and weird story. I was <laughs> That's what I want to hear. I was um well, maybe it's not that weird. There are no tentacles. <laughs> um but I started um making game I mean, I started making games, making levels for like Load Runner on the Vic 20 and like saving them on cassette. Like that was many, many years ago, but um uh more recently back in like 99 98, 99, 2000, um, I got pretty interested in Unreal Tournament and using the Unreal Editor. Um, at first, I was using it to, like, um, trick my coworkers who were kicking my ass at Capture the Flag that we'd play during lunch into, like, I'd in- installed, like, hidden teleporters, like, behind their bases and stuff <laughs> so that we could, so that we could, and then, and then found a way to sneak the, the change level onto their machines so that we could beat them. Um, well, but where, then... Where were you working <laughs> at the time when you were... That's, that part of the story is too weird to go into. Really? Um, well, I'm, god damn. I'm, um, just, I'm, I'm intrigued as hell now. You're not going to hear it. Oh. We've got to save something for the sequel, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, because, uh, like, something that I know about you from, uh talks that you've given and talks that other people have given uh using a file photo of you when you were like in a punk band sure when you were a teenager like where were like what what was you know your your transition from you know being in school and stuff to to game development like you were in bands and you were so like yeah i mean i so wow so rewind even further then after i was done making levels on the vic 20 (laughs) at the age of nine or whatever no um um, I, w- I um, originally had intended to study creative writing um, when I sort of got out of high school and started sco- college or whatever. Um, but um, even, you know, before I was 20 um, and the sort of, you know, teen angsty sorts of stories that I'd been writing at the time, I already knew that I wasn't really good at taking criticism. Like mm-hmm. I didn't like it. 
I didn't like getting criticism. Well, and, it's an acquired skill. <clears throat> yeah, you sure. Know? I mean, because I, I went through art school stuff and getting critiques, it's like, exactly. you don't know how to do it. Exactly. When you start, you have to learn it. Exactly. And, and so it's funny you say that because what I did instead was after kind of screwing around for a couple of years, just doing like general arts, like history and whatever philosophy and all that stuff. Um, I decided to go into art school and I got into a visual art school in Vancouver and did two years, like a diploma program in visual fine arts specifically. And I was taking creative writing classes, like in my two years as like electives before that and sort of starting to get a sense that criticism was good and useful and that I wasn't just going to spend four years going to college and then be done and sell a novel. Um, and that I needed criticism and feedback on my writing, but that I wasn't good at really getting it. So I went into art school really specifically to, because I knew I sucked at art. Like (laughs) I knew I was bad. I was good enough to get in to kind of a second or third tier art school. Um, but you know, I was like one of the crappiest artists in the class. And so I got a lot of criticism and, and I agreed with all of it. It's like, you're right. (laughs) I'm not very good at this. So tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Yeah. And that kind of I guess, thicken my skin a little bit and help me understand how to take criticism and how to, how to get it. And, yeah. um, and so after that, then I transferred now that I had a, like an actual diploma and could, you know, transfer up to a university and had a couple of years of general arts and a couple of years of fine arts behind me, I transferred into a creative writing program and, and did my bachelor's degree in creative writing. And then I did my master's degree in creative writing. And while I was sort of in the time that was m- my thesis time after I'd done the couple years of coursework um, and was working on my thesis, you know, I was working part-time and had different jobs and, and, and also started to, now we're back to the beginning of the, the middle of the story, which was near the beginning, <laughs> um, where um, I started to mess around with Unreal and, and Unreal Ed and, and, and after tinkering around with it, you know, building hacks and cheats to beat my friends, right. um, you know, I started um, playing some different mods, and there was a mod called Strike Force, which was sort of a, uh, uh, it was a little bit like a, like a counter strike right? kind of yeah. thing. Um, and so I started build. Uh, so I started. I built a level for them, and just kind of like as a. I wonder if I can build a level from front to back, and like yeah. drop their little pieces in it, and and so I did, and I sent it off to them, and they published it in whatever one of the versions of their of their thing, and cool. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And I had a friend back in Vancouver at the time who kind of helped me play test stuff. And, you know, we played it together a bunch of times and figured out you know, what I could fix and what I could do better. And that was really helpful. And and then, you know, one day or maybe probably one late one night, I got an email from him. This is like in the very early days. of. I mean, this is 98 or 99. Right? Yeah. I guess it was probably 2000 by now. And And it was like, hey, do you want to work in Montreal? And it was basically a link to kind of a joking link to a job posting for a job in Montreal for people with Unreal experience to be a level designer on some game. (laughs) And uh, so kind of on a on a lark, I just packaged up my existing resume and sent some screenshots from my level, which I think had literally shipped like that week. Yeah. And um, sent it off to them. And. And, you know, something like six weeks later, I was living in Montreal and, yeah. and I'd been hired um, to work as a level designer on the game that turned out to be Splinter Cell. So um, super lucky, right? Like, yeah. I, I'm sure of the couple hundred people who got their start in the game industry that year, 
um, and ship their first game, like I'm sure I'm probably the only one who worked on a game that sold like 5 million copies and, you know, got a over 90 Metacritic and, yeah. you know, was hugely successful. Um, yeah, and I mean, it was a, it was a very, I mean, it was the first entry in a new series mm-hmm. and it was, it felt very um, unique at the time. Mm-hmm. It was really Ubi's first stealth-based thing that they yep. had, they had done, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, like the tech was really really cool to me. I remember that the dynamic shadows yep. were were really impressive when I looked at that. Game. Like it, this this was in the days when when light was being projected through Venetian blinds and you walked in front of it and actually yeah. projected onto your character. It was yeah. like, holy shit. Holy cow. <laughs> it's just like real life. It was really, it was yeah. really cool. So, I mean, I imagine that, that was... One window at a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was impressive. I mean, I remember, I mean, I remember seeing even, the game wasn't even called Splinter Cell. It was, you know, roughly an approximation of what we ended up making when I saw the very first demo of it when I went for my interview and it was very, very different. But even then, you know, at that point, I'd only ever really played first-person games, and it was a third-person game and that you played on a controller. And I was like, really? This is lame. Like, um, but, I played um, it with mouse and keyboard because I, I played it on PC. But, but um, I remember um, being floored by how impressive it looked and what they were doing with, with some of the lighting. And, you know, back then, what I really cared about, you know, what, what caught my attention was the graphics and the visuals, and yeah. that didn't end up remaining true for long, but yeah. um, I was just astonished by how the game looked. Um, well, and there was a lot of cool, like, uh, traversal stuff, all of the, you know, hand over hand on a pipe yep. and all that stuff that felt very, very interesting interactively. Like, yep. your character, in a lot of ways, had a much more physical connection to yep. the environment than in a lot of games, especially then, because it was totally pre parkour yep. craze uh, yep. uh, revolution. Yeah, I mean, zip lines and pipe climbing and ladders and all of the animations that go with it and, and the split jump. Like, yeah, oh god, the um, split jump. Um, he could hold that split for so long. Yeah. And and um, that stuff was really amazing to see. Um, you know, it was the thing that opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, there was a lot of value in third-person gaming. Um, and And I think that whole... You know, not to yank us too far forward, but I think that whole um, idea of of a character that's physically connected to the world and then eventually to other characters became um, became kind of a thing that I really pushed really hard on in in my in later games, and it's something that I care deeply about for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, you're you're right. Like before that, everything was just interacting down the barrel of a gun and after that it was really about what you can touch and what you can feel and, and all that stuff so yeah well the, the funny one funny thing is so I, you know i i got my start making my own levels and then whatever got a portfolio together and so on and so forth um but when i was in college uh my concentration ended up being sculpture and kind of for similar reasons like i had drawn a lot and when i was in a figure drawing class and we do critiques it was mostly just people being like that looks Nice. You know, I'm like, great. Well, I I want to learn about working in space I'm not comfortable in, so I'm going to do, like, 3D art. Um, and the professor that I had was, like, this very progressive, more interested in, like, performance and sort of contemporary abstract um, versions of, like, what sculpture is. And so I went through his, his classes and I learned a lot of stuff and was exposed to a lot of stuff. And so for your final concentration, you have to pitch a thing. And he very... 
I think wisely was like, well, what do you want to do after you're done here? Do you want to go be a sculptor? And I'm like, I think I, I think I want to make video games. I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty sure. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm working on, you know, like with, I, I want to start using level editors to like make my own stuff. And he's like, all right, your concentration assignment is like for a week, all you're going to do is pick your level editor and make a level and show it to, you know, present it at the end of the, the, the week and show what you've learned about it, but also see if like putting in all of your time for like an extended period of time doing this thing is something you actually right. like to do. Right. So the thing that I did is I used the, uh, the splinter cell editor, uh, and it was only multiplayer editor, right? But all I did was I made a, um, a, 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 a obstacle course level where I just set up all the different kinds of traversals that the spy has. So transitioning right. from a pipe climb to an overhand to a zip line, and right. like, and it was just a very abstract. It was just like a spiral that went up, and you had to you know climb over shit and and do all of that stuff, and then like set a bomb at the end, and then zip line back to the, right. the beginning. And, yeah, it was exactly because I was like, well, the thing I'm most interested in are, like, single-player experiences where, where, like, what I find interesting about Splinter Cell is, like, how do I, you know, uh, very physically interact with the environment. And so if I could set up all that stuff and kind of have that tool set, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was instructional. It was, it was good. And I, I'm really glad that, in 2004 or whatever it was 2005 ubisoft was still releasing like <laughs> the version of of unreal that they used yeah, to build to tell, the, to tell the truth whatever, i didn't whatever. even realize we did i don't think i don't think we did for the first one i think it was it for, for pandora tomorrow yeah i think it was for that yeah one. yeah that's interesting um, yeah, those tools were pretty terrible. Um, I mean, they were great at the time, obviously, but you know, by by today's standards, they're they're pretty awful. Um, Luckily, um, nobody has to use them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Somebody maybe has to kind of use them sometimes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But yeah, it was uh, the so so when I first started working at Ubi and getting into those tools. Um, admittedly, there was still a lot of tool development going on. A lot of stuff had been built. Like, actually, the engine was um, fairly far along, and there was, you know, constant, you know, co-drops from Epic and merges that had to be done that was stressing out the, the core engineering team and all of that. But yeah. um, for the most part, it didn't affect my work much. There were new tools coming online. And, um, it w you know, I was what I was about... I was about 20, 28 or something when I started working there, maybe even 29. But um, I could sit down at my desk and work for like 14 or 16 hours without, without even getting up, like without even going to the bathroom. Like I could just concentrate forever on that stuff. Which like is it, nuts. I know, I know. And it, it, it wasn't even like, it wasn't even like... Um, and I'm talking like high, high, like out, high productivity output, like yeah. really moving stuff around and building stuff and, and tuning it and, and testing it and just nonstop for yeah. 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours a day. And without any real fatigue, like going home at the end of the day, feeling awesome, like tired, really tired, but yeah. feeling awesome and going back the next day and attacking it. Well, when you get um, into like a flow state, like I totally. think that, and I think that when you are in the midst of editing a level, when it's post gray box but pre 
yep. bug fixing and you really are crafting stuff mm-hmm. every minute that you're that you're working with the editor it is really easy just to be like uh oh I thought it was yeah I thought it was 1 p.m. but it's 8 p.m. you yep. know kind of thing yep so it sounds like you spent yeah it mo- what what's sort of a, a classic arc of like full-time content creator to more oversight to like directorial role sure. kind of stuff yeah um how long were you on the first Splinter Cell as as level designer? Um, so it's kind of a so 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 the I fought promotion every step of the way. I started as a level designer, and um, in the summer of two thousand and one, and I guess Splinter Cell shipped in like. November of two thousand and two, three, two, two sounds was, right to me. But yeah, I think it was November of. But it could have been later, actually. I don't know. I think it, maybe it was two thousand three. Now okay. I can't remember. Um, I think it must have been two thousand three, um, but maybe it was two thousand two. Anyways, <laughs> it was two thousand two because Xbox launched in. 2001 right November 2001 yeah so yeah it was it was the second Christmas for Xbox okay um and um so yeah I was only on that project for like 18 months or something like that um and Which is, it's a long time to be on a project if you're really in it yeah, the yeah. whole time so I was a level design I started as a level designer and then um and I don't I don't remember the months or anything or the sure. dates of this but no, no. at at Alpha the the lead game designer left the company he left to go back to school and whatever yeah and uh they asked me if i wanted to take over the game design and i was kind of like well i do kind of provided that i don't have to stop working on my levels because you know like i mean first of all we're alpha so the game design is 90 percent. there's still tuning and stuff to do but you know lots of us are going to contribute to that and like so sure i'll take i i will but don't pull me off of my stuff like i need to do my stuff and then at beta, the scriptwriter left, and uh, he went to go make movies, and so I took over the script, and that, again, kind of reluctantly, I was like, as long as I don't have to, as long as it's working like it is in game design, and I don't have to do too much, I'll take it over and make sure that any fixes that need to go through, go through. Yeah. That was much harder because, you know, as we started to creep up on ship, we ended up cutting a couple lat- levels, Yeah. Um, and the hardest part was... There, we needed to cut two levels, we felt, like, just in terms of how the manpower we had and the bug fixing we had to do. And there were a, couple, there were a few that were candidates for not being that great. Yeah. One of them was one of my levels, and one of them was somewhere else in the game, and another one was the level that was right beside my level uh, that was potentially on the block. Yeah. And so, so at, I, I could have decided to cut the other two and keep mine yeah (laughs) but then it would have been twice as much work to like fix the story in two different places and bridge the gap and make sure all the stuff gets distributed out so that the player can follow what's going on so so i actually cut my own level um along with the one beside it so that i only had to bridge one big chunk in the story and um which i'm sure was was the best practical decision to make yeah i mean stitching stitching a story together yeah after it's had a chunk cut out, is uh, is hard. Yeah, yeah. It's it's also not the most fun. So. Yeah. so so yeah. I mean, I did that, and um, and 
And then, so what levels did you end up owning in that game? What were the I mean, it got, it got. I mean, the I built the first level, which mm-hmm. was like the the Tbilisi streets and police station and all of the that stuff in Tbilisi, and then and then that was it. Like okay. I worked on a bunch of other levels as yeah. we closed everything down. Um, my other level was the Severonickel like um, nickel smelting facility oh, right. or whatever that ended up shipping later. Uh, as downloadable content in a like a massively rebuilt version, another another one of the level designers um, was the one who actually dusted it off and shipped it. Um, and uh, so yeah, I mean that's right. That's right. I really only built that one level, but yeah. um, that level, my my level, the the nickel plant, Severo nickel. Uh, was a chunk of that was the level that went to E3 to show mm. off the game when it was first revealed and was a huge success at E3. So I had to push that all the way through, even though it never shipped in the final game. <laughs> and then um, uh, the Xbox, the OXM demo level, and I think we probably shipped a demo on PC as well, um, was uh, was my level as well. Like it was the police station, the last segment of, of Tbilisi. Yeah. So I had to push that out for the demo and all of that so like while i only shipped one level in the game i also had like the all the press and demo stuff that went with it so, yeah <clears throat> so i had my hands very full <laughs> yeah for sure i mean that, and that's a that's a lot of transitions to go through in 18 months on your first job <laughs> yeah in the, sure. in the industry sure. yeah um but yeah it sounds like you were by the end of it you were you were shepherding a lot of stuff or like fixing and kind of you know shipping stuff that that it started rolling um yeah. as far as like the the design and writing stuff especially yeah um, i mean it was more yeah shepherding is the maybe the way to put it it was really just like oh this needs a little bit of prodding over here and push it push that but you know most of, like i said most of the work was done by the yeah time i took it over so but then the thing that was really much more yours was on splinter cell chaos theory and that came out um a few years and one or two sequels later was Pandora Tomorrow. Pandora Tomorrow came out like a year and a half later, or a year later, and we came out like a year after that. So right. we had two years, yeah, to make uh, Chaos Theory. Yeah, I'm guessing that was one of those situations where it was like you wrapped Splinter Cell, and, and then it was just, like we're yeah. going to go straight into yeah. Chaos Theory and yep. Leapfrog Dev Team kind of stuff. Yep. So what was so it's you know it it seems like an interesting situation to be in. Where you came onto this project, you know, a Splinter Cell that was established, and and you caught a lot, a lot of it by the end. But with Chaos Theory, was it much more in your hands to say like, well, what do we want to do next with this this property? It was, but you know, a lot of a lot of strange things happened. Like first of all, like like I said, the lead designer and the and the writer had left, and a couple other um, the lead level designer left after, before the project shipped as well. Um, a couple of the level designers left. Um, then after the project shipped, there was, I don't know if you remember, but a bunch of guys left EA Montreal to go start EA Montreal. There was about six guys that left. Okay. Um, that included like the art director, the lead programmer, the lead animator, the, um, uh, the guy who was the new lead level designer. So basically the core of the team yeah. vanished, right? Yeah. Um, whether they'd left in the end of, Splinter Cell development or after the game shipped to go to EA, um, really there was me, um, there was um, Chin, who was the who was one of the senior artists on the first one, who became the art director on Chaos Theory, um, the the sound designer, 
Fabien Noel and uh, I, 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 shame on me for like forgetting a few key people that remained. It's it's um, been a lot of years. I but don't it's think. been a long time. <laughs> um, a couple of senior pro- like like a lot of people remain, but I mean just of like the the sort of division leads or whatever. The, yeah. Um, there were very few of us, so we kind of had to rebuild a team from from scratch in a sense, and. Um, I, I was I actually wasn't the game designer. I was the lead level designer, and the script writer, um, and uh, we hired another guy to be the game designer. And um, you know, Chin became the art director. Um, Danny Lapage would became the the lead programmer or the technical director. He'd been the guy who um, pushed the original Splinter Cell to PC. He'd mm. managed managed that team. Yeah, and he'd taken a couple of our key gameplay guys. Um, from from the original Splinter Cell to do that PC push, and then they came back on on Chaos Theory as the leads, mm-hmm. as the lead programmers and senior programmers and stuff. So we had a we had a really good team, and and a lot of the level designers, most of the level designers, ended up coming over, um, which was good because they were kind of like we were pretty tight. Yeah. Um, and um, and so yeah, I mean, I was the I was the script writer and the lead level designer, and so. I worked with those level designers and a few new guys that we brought on um, to figure out what all, you know, to come up with a high-level story of, like, what kind of environments would we like to go to and what would we like to see and what's the high-level plot and, like, all of this stuff. And then, you know, getting some concept materials for levels and working with the art director to figure out what would look good and what's our yeah. tech going to be like and what what's the next, you know, light shining through the blinds onto yourself <laughs> sure. like thing that we need to do. And you know, exploring all of that, and then um, once we sort of had the levels and the and the high level story worked out, um, fortunately, I had you know senior guys who'd shipped the original Splinter Cell with me, and uh, they just started building levels. I mean, there was a lot of like working together; everyone was all working together, and some processes we were using to do it better than we'd done it the first time. But um, we, I just kind of sequestered myself away for a few months, sort of in the in the sort of at the end of the first third of the project and built and wrote the script and it was like like three months of just non-stop writing yeah yeah so how was it writing for a tom clancy license like it it seems like did you have a lot of constraints you know like or was was there like you know a a, a universe bible you had to stick to and all that kind of stuff or no no, nothing that we hadn't already ri- that we hadn't written ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, Tom Clancy didn't didn't really interfere at all. There was some internal stuff at Ubisoft, like you know, there'd been the Rainbow Six games before that, and and it, but it wasn't like universe bible stuff. It was more just like um, best practices and like sort of like you know things needed to have a certain level of realism and a certain level of techno thriller credibility yeah. and all of that. But I mean, that was pretty, did you have like military consultants or we did yeah. that told yeah. you about how the NSA worked and stuff? Yeah, like we, that? we had on, uh, on chaos theory, we brought in like a, you know, uh, like a, like a former Navy seal and, yeah. and he, you know, gave us a bunch of stuff about how his equipment worked and like, you know, different operational things. And, you know, for example, like one of the, one of the things that we got from him, I remember him talking. We were talking about the cargo ship mission, the second mission of the game, and it's like, how would, like, how would you get on a cargo ship if you had to infiltrate it? And he's like, probably they would drop us in the water in the path of the ship, and then we would just climb up the outside, like when it drove over us, basically. Right. <laughs> and then we'd do the mission, and we'd probably just jump off the back, and then get picked up a few hours later. And I was like, oh, 
cool. <laughs> I mean, and so that's sort of that's exactly what we did, it's right? It's also pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was also like, hey, that means we don't have to have a bunch of helicopters flying in and like all this elaborate stuff yeah. to explain it. It's just like, yep, yeah, you're just on the deck and you're wet. Yeah, done. You, you don't have to be on the little inflatable boat with the yeah with the outboard motor yeah. and yeah, well, the submarine guy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's something that 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 struck me about chaos theory. Um, I mean, there was a lot of design design philosophy stuff that I feel like evolved, but also I felt like in the character space and the dialogue space, um, there was a level of playfulness, um, like between the characters mm-hmm. that I thought was really, um, endearing and that, that I felt separated it a little bit from, from the prior entries. Right. So what, who was, who, okay, so... Who was the cast of characters that you inherited, and did you create any new characters for the, like, because, I mean, obviously there's a new villain or something, right? Sure, but, yeah. but within sort of the ensemble that that uh, that Sam is part of. So, um, so I mean, I, I inherited Sam and Lambert, right? Um, yeah. In, in the original game, his first handler, Vernon Wilkes Jr., got killed in, in Kalina Tech, and then he had another handler, Francis Cohen, in... Uh, I can't remember whether she appeared in Pandora. I think she was in Pandora Tomorrow. I, mm. I don't remember. Um, and I think there was also someone else in Pandora Tomorrow. I've only played Pandora Tomorrow once. It was a long time ago. Sure, yeah. Um, and so I wanted to um, get in a new handler who'd be the handler through the whole thing and try to establish that character. So I created Will Redding. Okay. Um, named after Pat Redding. Right. Um, and um, Which I now recognize. <laughs> and wouldn't have at the time, but... And um, so, so you guys had worked together on the the Splinter Cell series um, no, prior to Pat, this. No, Pat at this point wasn't even in the game industry. Pat was oh. the best man at my wedding. Like I've known <laughs> Pat since you know. Pat was one of the Pat was the guy on my team getting his ass handed to him when I was hacking <laughs> hacking Unreal tournament levels so that we could try to beat the guys at at work who were giving us the smackdown. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Pat and I have been friends for a very long time. Um, okay. Um. And I always sort of figured he should get his ass out of doing like web development and get into games because I thought he'd be really good at it yeah. so so I tried really hard and eventually managed to get him um, through Gregoire Gobi uh, finally managed to convince Greg to hire Pat to bring him in on on uh, one of the Far Cry uh, console games before oh, okay. we finally got to work together on Far Cry 2 yeah yeah um, but um, yeah, so yeah I, so I you, created you, you um, that character yeah. yeah I created Will Redding and you know that's about I mean I created all the characters in the, in the game but um, well the, the the relationship that I remember really working for me as a player was between Sam and the red haired tech girl that would call him Grimm's in. daughter yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Grimm's daughter that's yeah. right um and I thought that there were some really convincing, just nice exchanges between them. Like, the mm-hmm. one that sticks out the most in my mind is something like, Grim's daughter says, like, oh, I was in middle school. Right. And, and, and she's like, what were you up to? And he, he's like, like... sleeping in a ditch beside a road in Iraq or something yeah, like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there were just, there were various parts where Sam would kind of say, like, God, you're making me feel old. Kind of, and I thought that that, it, you know, it was a little bit like father daughter, or like sure. uncle, you know, sure. um, niece kind of kind of thing. And it felt like there was a, a certain amount of like believable affection between those characters. Right. Um, I feel like that's something that is 
really important when it comes to like establishing the tone of mm-hmm. the game. You know, because whatever title of this podcast, I, I'm I'm really interested in how one establishes and maintains a cogent tone. You know, that right. has its own own identity. Right. Um, I feel like the characters were part of what what solidified that for chaos theory. Sure. So, did you have like a conscious approach that that you took to those character relationships and how you wanted to express them? Yeah, I mean, I really wanted, um, I really wanted Sam to have a dark. I mean, Sam had a dark sense of humor, or at least that was the way he was always presented to me by the guys who created him, and and I just tried to do dark sense of humor, and you know, maybe for whatever reason, it it came off more in my version of the game or something, but... Well, um, some of the stuff that, that also stood out that people talked a lot about was the, the interrogation. Right, so... You grab a guard. Right, so one of the reasons I wanted to emphasize the the humorous aspect of his personality is because a lot of the stuff that I wanted to do with the interrogations was, was pretty... Like, it's pretty dark. He's pretty menacing, and he's pretty um, um, threatening a lot of the time. Um, and I didn't want people, I didn't want him to be just a tough guy. Like I didn't want him to just be, I didn't want it to take itself too seriously because you're talking about real, I mean, you're holding a knife to someone's throat and you're threatening to kill them. Right. Um, so I didn't want it to be like creepy, like, like this is like too violent. Um, it's a, it's actually a funny story. Well, funny, it's not that funny, I guess. (laughs) Um, you know, sometimes I went too humorous and sometimes I went too dark and back and forth and in the in the Hokkaido mission, which was the mission we ended up showing at E3 in 2004 or whatever, yeah. um, when we first unveiled the game, um, there was an interrogation um, because the whole point in Hokkaido is he's catching up with Douglas Shetland, who, who, the, who we'd come up with and then given to the Pandora Tomorrow guys to try and integrate into their mm. game to establish him, yeah. um, which was cool and worked out great. Um, but... Um, the whole point was he's getting closer and closer and closer to finding out that Shetland's a traitor. And it's like a longtime friend of his that he's known for whatever, 20, 30 years. Right. And so the, I'm trying to show that he's getting angry and like, like the, the humor part is becoming the, the dark part of the dark humor is starting to come <laughs> to the forefront. Right. And there was one interrogation that I'd written where he gets a guy and I can't, I can't even remember what he's asking him about, but the guy refuses to talk and he says, uh, something like, or he said, um, don't make me cut your throat and look for the words inside your neck. <laughs> and it happened to be in the section of the level that we were going to show at E3 that year. And, you know, of course, we're polishing and getting all this stuff done and stuff's got to get recorded and all yeah. of this business is going on and it's super hectic. And it was Greg Gobi again mm. who who caught that line and said, you can't put this line in in the E3 demo. I don't think it should be in the game. We'll talk about that later, but it can't go to E3. And so we got a big argument about that. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is the part where the dark takes over the dark <laughs> humor or whatever. Yeah. And he, he basically just vetoed it. He just said, no, take it out, change it for something else. So I rewrote the line. We recorded something else. Yeah. The, and Greg, for context, was the guy who worked in, at least when I worked with him, he worked in product development at, at 2K. He was publisher right. side at Ubi as yeah. well, right? Yeah, he was sort of the, the creative overseer of uh, right. Ubi Montreal when I was there. Um, and, um, and then what happened was the day we landed at E3 and, you know, this is a terrible story, so whatever, um, was back in the early days of the, the Gulf War, there was, I think it was a journalist who'd been captured 
and was like literally beheaded with yeah. a bread knife on camera. Yep. Like literally the day we showed up at E3 and it was like all on all the newspapers and it was really fucking horrific, right? Yeah. And I was, I remember waking up in the morning and walking out of the hotel in LA and seeing the front page of the newspapers and being like, thank you, Craig. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, whoa. And that, that was for me, it's a funny story, you know, when I first started working at UB Montreal, like I said, it was the summer of 2001, and most of that, not most of the team, a big chunk of the team were guys who'd come up from UB New York. That's where Splinter Cell had started, was, okay. was as a UB New York project, but they'd kind of shut that down, and it became like Game Loft or something. And, right. And they brought about maybe half a dozen or ten people up from UB New York, and three months later, after I get on this team, the World Trade Centers get hit, right? And yeah. it hit all those guys, like, really hard. It was a big... I mean, it hit everybody in the whole world really hard, right? Yeah, but, but for them, it's if like you're here from we are. New York is a different. Yeah, and thing here entirely. we are making a game about being a counterterrorism guy fighting the good fight on behalf of the U.S. and like all of this stuff is happening, and it's. I think it was really, you know, it was really kind of weird and creepy, and it. But it didn't. Aside from these, all these guys from New York being my my good friends, and like you know, going through shipping a game with them and everything, it didn't hit me the same way. I'm not an American, and uh, you know, for different reasons, but. That it was that thing that you know that that knife thing that really like for me anyways personally made made me realize how how careful you have to be when you're I mean when you're when you're writing about these kinds of themes yeah when you're talking about about stuff that is potentially real to real yeah. to yeah. to potentially to real people, to real people you know yeah. like yeah. Um, and I, I tangentially I I felt that I no one has 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 given me the feedback that they thought that I landed on the wrong side of this thing. But um, for Gone Home, we've had a lot of people say when they were like going up to the attic at the end, they're like, she's going to have killed herself and it's mm. going to be horrible and I, I'm i scared to go in the attic because I don't want to see that. And it doesn't end up, spoilers sure. or whatever, it doesn't end up being that. And it's one of those things where the whole of, of Gone Home was very a process of like gradual layering, kind of accretion of of the atmosphere that ended up and, and the thrust of any given moment. And so from, like, I wrote the lines and everything, and looking back at them after I had written them, I'm like, oh, that does sound a little, like, has some finality to it. Right. Like, maybe Sam is talking in more serious ways about how she, like, doesn't want to be alive anymore, which was not the intent in the first place. But right. then we got the voice actor to read it, and I listened to the read, and I was like, Jesus, that is dark but we we had it and i still thought it was authentic yeah on its own right but then when a player encounters it and they encounter it in the context of sure unlike me the ice the 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 line in isolation has this one effect but for the player who's encountering it the first time it's like part of this yeah this this arc of experience and once people played the thing and gave me that feedback i'm like god i hope that people don't feel like i was being glib or manipulative right. with the issue of kids killing themselves. Right. Like, especially gay kids killing sure. themselves is like a fucking thing, right? Yeah. And so I think, yeah, sometimes, as you were noting, in isolation, you're like, that's a good line. Yeah. But then in context, yeah. you, you, you realize what it points to, that, that yeah. you weren't really um, thinking about it at the time. Um, that's really that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so... So yeah, so you showed it at at E three. How how long before you shipped was that? Was the game pretty far along at that point? Well, originally we were supposed to ship the game that Christmas, mm -hmm. so it was supposed to be whatever June, whenever E three is. We were supposed yeah. to ship it in 
at Christmas time, but shortly after E three, we came back and circled the wagons and realized we weren't going to make it. And, yeah. And again, I fought with Greg. I was like, "Fuck <laughs> you! We're going to make it. We're going to make it. We're going to make it." I must be the so so. Another thing that happened in there that I kind of we didn't talk about is mm-hmm. like uh, so I was the lead level designer and the and the script writer, and at some point, I think it was before E three, uh, it was uh, word came down that we were going to um, that that Paris editorial wanted there to be a creative director on every, at least every major project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they asked me if I wanted to do it. And again, I said, no, like I got all this work to do with the script. I got all that. I don't want to be in a bunch of meetings. Like I just need to keep working on my content and making the stuff I have to make. And, yeah. and then it was kind of like, well, we kind of have to have one. And I said, well, are you going to make someone else be one? And they're like, no, we won't. Like, we're not going to give it to someone else just to have it, but it'd just be probably a good idea if you took it. So, so eventually <laughs> yeah. I just took it. Um, and so I was, then I was the creative director, script writer, lead level designer. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how we went to E3. So that was before E3. Um, and then, yeah, we were supposed to ship for Christmas, and then, yeah, I got in a huge, I don't want to say a huge blowout. I mean, I, I argued to ship the game, so what I was going to say yeah. is I might be the only creative director in the history of the world who argued against getting three more months. To I don't like, want more time. Yeah. Which I mean, I, I, was, I was convinced it was going to be awesome and that we didn't need it, but well, and it's a, we needed it. <laughs> yeah, and it, I think it's, it's admirable, at least, to take more time out of sheer necessity than to start from a point of can we yeah. just get more time to yeah. burn on this on this project yeah um so was that the first time that you I, I assume once you were creative director and you were going to e3 and everything you started doing a lot more of was that your first time doing like press and everything like being the uh, did, did you do a lot of i mean i did a little bit of press stuff like with the original splinter so and the mm-hmm. original level but i mean that was two years before and it yeah. was like some dude with a camera like just filming you talking on the show floor with the game on a on a you know a 12 inch screen like it's just totally different from like sitting down in interviews on sound stages with you know jeff Keeley or someone like it was it it had become a big deal yeah and um we like no one no one thought splinter cell was going to there was going to be a Splinter Cell game at that E3. It was Pandora Tomorrow had just come out three months before. And yeah. So it had come out that March. We showed up there. They were still selling Pandora Tomorrow. We're pitching Chaos Theory. Right. It wasn't even called Chaos Theory at that point. We had a, like a big theater demo. We went, we went nuts on that demo. That demo was like 20 minutes long uh, or 17 minutes long or something mm-hmm. inside Hokkaido. And then everyone had one of those little game show things like, do you choose A, B, oh. or C? So everyone in the audience got to vote. We would put up like two cards like, do you want to see the 30-second the piece in the lighthouse or the 30-second piece in the battery? And people oh, okay. would pick, pick one, and then they'd see a little 30-second demo of something, and then two more, and they'd pick one, and then two more, and they'd pick one. And the idea was really get people walking out of the theater saying, I want to go back and see the one that I didn't see yeah. or talking to their friends later that day. Oh, I saw this one and this one. And you didn't see that one. Oh, this one was cool. They did this and this and this yeah. to try and get people like almost like addicted to the demo. Right. Um, <laughs> which, which is hilarious to think of, but, but I mean, it was, but it was also like the first time that people were doing that kind of like, like bringing the, bringing tanks to E3 kind right. of like really bringing out the big guns to sure. try and, um, and so it was huge. I remember like 
we had a huge lineup around the side of the thing and I was supposed to do like two hours of demos in the morning and then I'd have two hours off and then two hours in the afternoon and then two hours off or something like that I ended up just doing demos like eight hours a day except for like 30 minutes because I just wanted to be in the room with people right yeah and I remember there were lineups going around the whole booth and um, there was so much press and so many business contacts coming to see the game that they'd be opening the back door from inside the UB private area and they'd be filling, we had like 30 seats or something or 25 seats and they'd fill it out. And then no one who was standing in line would was able to get in. <laughs> and this went on for two or three demos in the sort of second half of the first day. And then I went and talked to PR and I said, look, I know you need to get your partners in here, but when this is a room full of people who love our game, people are cheering. When it's a room full of guys from Walmart, they are sitting there quietly taking notes and then they shuffle out the back and they don't know whether it's good or not. Yeah. So you need to make sure that at least 50% of the people in this room are people from that line, not because we owe it to them because they're our fans. Yeah. Like but that's be, important too, yeah. but because if our buyers or our business contacts don't know how awesome this game is, like this works for you too, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> put your people in a crowd that's going to win them over. Right? Yeah, because and, in that reaction, and like, that changed, you can't argue against people, that, right? I, I mean, I remember the, <laughs> this is, I remember the first time, not maybe not the first time, but one of the, t in the middle of the Hokkaido demo, there's a part where you sneak into one of the rooms where there's a candle and you blow out a candle and then you're right. about to go into this other section where you end up getting in a shotgun fight like with your thing at the end. And you take out your 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 rifle and you and at that time the animation for switching attachments on your rifle was literally like you put the weapon down, you took out the back piece, you took out the other piece and you put it there, you took like four pieces off the weapon and then you took four other and they were all like modeled on the character, yeah, right? And yeah, you yeah. it took like 30 seconds. It was so frustrating, <laughs> right? It was so frustrating to play, but it looked so awesome and I remember again and again people just going, "Oh, yes!" <laughs> like people just losing it over this sort of sort of techno fetishistic yeah. like approach to like this well, yeah. breaking down the gun and building it into something else it's and rad like, when you do that it, was, like, it I, looked super cool I love using like the suitcase rifle in the Hitman games because it's like you, you're just carrying a suitcase around and you put it down and then they do the whole animation of like the right. barrel goes into yeah. and the stock goes on and it's just something satisfying about yeah. I think it's, it's sort of that physicality of like yeah. okay this isn't just a thing I pull out of my pocket it's yeah. like real and yeah. that's cool yeah um but yeah, I mean, it sucked for the game because like, oh, I, I'm going to go in that room and I need to switch to the launcher. Click. Yep. Oh, I think I'll go get a beer. Yep. Come back. <laughs> a few minutes, Sam will be done. Okay, let's play. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we had to we had to cut it. We knew as soon as we had it integrated that we had to cut it. But yeah. we were like, yeah, but it looks cool. So it we're show well. it E3. It demos yeah. well. Yeah. And the thing is, once once the full game comes around, it's not like people are kicking down the doors like where's my really complicated shotgun switch yeah, animation yeah, exactly, yeah. because you play the game and you can actually play it and that's yeah. that's better yeah um well so so yeah so that means that for a good what three four years you were on on splinter cell um yeah from like well that. from mid 2001 till you know mid 2000 or Early 2005, four years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Some, something that I think, I think there were, it felt to me like there were a lot of small changes in Chaos Theory specifically, both in the level design and in the player verb set. Yeah. That, um, I mean, what, I'll leave it to you, what um, What were the, the big changes in like philosophy or, or what the player could do in Chaos Theory and to what end did you want to make those 
those specific changes to how the how the game played and how the world was formed? I mean, it was really so. The couple like big picture things, and this was you know this was all stuff that we all talked about and hashed out before I was creative director. It wasn't me handing this stuff down. It was consensus largely among the team. Admittedly, I was kind of a bit of a bulldog pushing for some of these things. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I I was we'd been having fights on the original Splinter Cell, and I mean fights. Like this is probably a large part of what caused that team to fragment. Um, at the end, uh, over over all of the game overs and like you know gating all of the if you don't microphone the guy off the with the laser off the window or whatever like and get eighty percent of the conversation then it's game over and you have to do it again stuff like that's just super I I found it super frustrating yeah and so you know one of the high level things that that I pushed really hard for and that most people agreed with me was there would be no game over so everything that you do in the game if there's a way to fail it. There has to be another way to do it. Yeah. So if you fail microphoning the conversation, then you have to be able to go steal the the, the tape that the guy was using to secretly record the conversation yeah. after the fact. Right. right? Um, I mean, the only game over screen was you you get headshotted or right, something. Right. You get killed. Right? Yeah. yeah. The only game over was if you die. Yeah. Um, and and I think uh, I think we do that. I think there's a mission where. Um, Unless there's a mission where you're not allowed to be detected, which there might be. We might have put that in. I think we did. I think we said you're not allowed to be detected in th- displace or something. I think you did a yeah, a ghost mission somewhere in there. Um there, there were definitely a But it was still super the point like, was it was still kill anybody missions also. There were non lethal there was non lethal requirements. I don't I think. think there was, except in the mission maybe it maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a non lethal mission and not a not a you can't be detected mission. Anyway, anyway the yeah. point is it was very like the game over conditions were always crystal clear. It right. It was always like if you die or if it's like this global mission constraint, which I think we might have used once. Yeah, um, and I could be thinking of of an earlier title. I just remember breaking some dude's neck, and Lambert's like Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> Game over now. <laughs> uh, but and uh, then and then aside from that, um, the other thing we wanted to do was just make all of the all of the interactions as systemic as possible. We wanted to you know simplify out some of the complexity you know of having two kinds of sticky cameras. Like right. why have two kinds of sticky cameras? Is it really the end of the world if the player can gas three people in a level in yeah, level yeah. three or whatever when we introduce the sticky camera? Like, we don't need two kinds of things and two kinds of functionality. Why do we have, you know, doors that behave in seven different ways in the original Splinter Cell? Let's just have one fucking door, and it can be locked or not. You can always use the opt. Like, you know, in Splinter Cell, the original, like, there's doors that, that you know, that you can't use the optic cable on and there's like all like all of the doors that you can't see through with your thermal vision and like sure. all of this kind of stuff and it was just like why it's just it's just confusing right um so we just streamlined all of that stuff and and also like you know if there's going to be in some ways it made things harder in some ways it made things easier like you know in splinter cell often uh uh, retinal scanner was used as a as like a hard gate. Like right. you need this guy, that guy to, to open yeah. this thing. If you kill him, then you can't. Or if you knock him out, you can't. As though his retinas disappear. But whatever. The point was like his eye rolls back He's a gate, head. and if you <laughs> kill him, then it's game over. Do it again. Yeah. Our approach was like every every keypad, every retinal scanner, every computer, every one of these things. They can all be hacked. So like if you if you take out the dude who has the security clearance to get through it, you can hack it. If if you know, if you didn't find the code, like you can use your thermal vision to read it off the keypad. If you, right. if the guy went through the door, or you can't find another way through, you can, and you can, and you don't want to hack it, you can find the the code somewhere, or you can interrogate someone for the code. Right. And it was just making sure that there was a dozen ways to get through 
yeah through the game and i something that so i mean the thing that you're saying on in a general sense it sounds like is that you did everything you could to make the game much more systemic right mm-hmm. like to add con- systemic con- consistency and yep. and readability to the whole thing which yeah i think that there's a ton of value to that because you you know players naturally develop this semiotic language of oh here's this thing and how it works right. and then when you have exceptions to that it's like well but not sometimes so right. what how do what's the rule yeah. right um and the you know there's a dozen ways to cross any um any any obstacle is also very much like a deus ex kind of you know looking glass ish kind of um thought process of saying it's going to be about how you use your tool set and how observant you are and and so on and so forth i know that you um got really involved in you know like doing doing talks at gdc and at Mm -hmm. other conferences and stuff so how did you how did because you know like i was saying earlier you introduced me to a lot of the 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 kind of bedrock knowledge about that kind of design through your talks right so how did you get into that stuff and how did you how did you get onto the on a speaking circuit uh, on that sort of like you know industry yeah. or academic kind of side of it yeah i mean i guess um i remember when splinter cell first shipped i i don't even remember how i heard about gdc i don't remember but i did and so i submitted a talk um, that didn't get accepted, but I remember a few weeks later, I got an email from the board, um, asking if I wanted to talk about something else instead. And I guess they picked me because I put in a submission that sounded maybe coherent, but wasn't what they wanted. And they wanted something else. And specifically they wanted to talk about simulation boundaries, which was, was ill-defined. It was literally like, do you want to talk about the simulation boundaries in Splinter Cell? And I was like, um sure what does that mean yeah (laughs) and then sort of and it doesn't really actually mean anything but i you know like i made up what it means in the talk um but um it means something i mean yeah you you define what what i defined it as is basically how do you make decisions about about where how do you make good decisions about the line across which you discontinue the simulation right right how do you decide like 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 if, if that door has a window in it which it does do you model the hallway out there um, and then if you, in your game, you can break glass, does that mean you can break the glass and go through that door? And then, and there's windows in those doors. Do you model the hallways out there? And yeah. is it windows all the way down into infinity? Like right. at, what can... po- at what point do you expect the player to be able to look at it and just go, that's the, the, the game doesn't continue through right. there. I don't if there's like there. a small window and you can shoot it out, why can't you reach your arm through to right. jiggle the yeah. handle? You know, exactly. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. And so, you know, that talk was my attempt to answer that question and, and, you know, I, I think it was probably Chris Hecker who'd, who'd asked for the talk. And so, and this was back when Checker had like, like dreadlocks down to his ass. I mean, it was, so he came up <laughs> after the talk and told me, told me he thought it was Chris a great Hecker talk and that he was on the board. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm glad you thought it was great. Um, so that's what started it. And then I think I, my next talk and my talk after that got accepted and it kind of yeah. snowballed from there. Um, it's funny actually, cause you said you were talking to, to Craig Hubbard and, um, one of the things in my in my simulations boundaries talk um, was a quote from Craig Hubbard where he'd said once um, um, in real life because my talk was called the interesting thing about bishops um, simulation boundaries in Splinter Cell and what he had said was in real life bishops can go wherever they want but in chess they can only move diagonally and uh, and that was sort of like 
you know, I talked about design metaphor and, and you know, why why we at the high level make decisions and why we try to make decisions about about simulation boundaries or elements of of simulation that we constrain, why we try to put them in line with, with aesthetic choices and, and with thematic things that are relevant to our themes and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's, I don't know if I answered your question. I was well, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, you, you, yeah, you found out about GDC and, and you were asked to do this talk and I assume maybe like doing research for that was where yeah. you started to find out about stuff like, the MBA framework yeah. kind of uh, high level design thinking kind of stuff. Yep, and yeah, and Doug's formal formal abstract design tools paper and yep. and all of that stuff. And then you know, once you're at GDC, if you go looking for that stuff, you find these people, and you then you can talk with them, and then you learn a lot more very quickly. Yeah, um, and then there's always more to read and more games to play and more ways to think about stuff. And it just kind of opened the door for. I mean, I also think. Um, I, w- I was also, you know, by this time I was 30, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't 22 and like games are awesome when, when you have decapitations. So I want more decapitation. Like right. I was, I was more interested in the craft and the, and, you know, and aesthetic choices than, than, you know, than maybe your typical game developer of 2001 right. was. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, cause you, you go, you, you go through the looking glass at some point and, and you're, you see, you're like, okay, I understand why I was attracted to the games that I played. And I understand why the ones that were good were good and why the parts of them that were bad were bad. And, right. and, and you then have to, after some level of like understanding of that stuff is really a question of, so how can I make something that's interesting? Yeah. You know, cause I, I think that there's a huge amount of value to, the naivete that you have early where you just you don't really know why you like what you like but you know what you like you don't know why you shouldn't do this out of the other thing um and that can lead to a lot of really vital stuff but on the other side of it when you have an understanding of all the mechanics you can start thinking in an intentional way about like well so what is interesting to do beyond the point of stuff that i've already played or whatever um i feel like it's interesting to see how um how the, the, the systemic design approach and, and that sort of analytical approach um, influenced, you know, chaos theory versus the, the prior incarnations. And then you went from chaos theory, I, I mean, probably from your point of view, not straight into Far Cry 2. There's probably some, you know, whatever crazy internal stuff in there. No, it was straight. It was direct. So, how, was... so like, that was a, so that's a, A, uh, having come from the Idle Thumbs podcast, Congratulations, sure. everybody. We get to talk about Far Cry 2 for a long time. Um, uh, B, um, I know at the time, it was a pretty, it seemed like a pretty crazy thing because it said Far Cry on the box, but there were no trigens and it wasn't sure. the guy with the Hawaiian shirt and sure. stuff. So you've probably told this story a bunch of times before, yeah. but like, how did you get to the point where, where it was like, I want this license and here's what I want to do with it? Well, so so first of all, like after I came off chaos theory um basically all i said to ubisoft was i don't want to make another splinter cell like um i i will never make a better one like like that's the best i can do you've got everything you're going to get out of me for this so and there are lots of other people who who might want to have a try at it so let them do it 
Um, there's lots of people who I was really confident in who would be able to take up four or five or six or whatever. And so I wanted to do something else. And so they, you know, showed me some of the things that were on the upcoming calendar. And the thing that was most interesting, because at this point, you know, we had a, acquired um, the Far Cry brand from Crytek and the engine, uh, that version of the engine. And we were the the Far Cry, I guess it was called Far Cry Instincts, the first Far Cry game on consoles had yeah. been in development for quite a long time. There, I mean, they were having a lot of challenges getting it in, in shape. It's a difficult port. Yeah, port. I, mean that, I mean, it's a very different game. But yeah, that engine was not right intended for an Xbox One. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, and then they already knew that they were going to be making a sequel to that. And then there was already talk about the next gen consoles. So there'd be a PS3 version and an Xbox 360, or a yeah. Yeah, PS3 version and Xbox 360 version of those, and like whatever Nintendo is going to come out with next, we'll make a version for that. And they, and they kind of already, you know, as a as a way to kind of um, capitalize on on the brand that they just acquired. There yeah. was really a strategy to like get ship this thing like like every year. Yeah, and, they made an arcade light gun version. Yeah, of it. oh yeah, they have it at the Ubisoft offices in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> I've um, encountered it in the wild uh, <laughs> once or twice. It's weird. Yeah, it's but, weird. Yeah. All right. But um, and that, that's, so, that's very much that's uh, that's Tropical Island Far Cry. That is not right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Far Cry Two light gun shooter would be so much more insane. <laughs> and 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 so the, the point is at this point they kind of already knew that okay, so for like two thousand seven or two thousand eight, we're going to need to we're going to want to refresh this brand and do something new. And so it's a good opportunity to take this engine, like take it offline and, you know, integrate a bunch of stuff into it, get it ready for next gen and do all the work that needs to get done in order to come out big with a hit two or three or maybe four years from now. We don't really know. Right. Um, And take a small team and figure out what you're going to make. And so we, you know, I took about six or eight guys and um, we started talking about it. And, um, you know, I took Dominic Gay, who's the, who was the um, the lead programmer on the PS2 version of Chaos Theory? He's the guy who made that thing miraculously work. Yeah. Um, I brought um, an art director, Alex Amancio, who had come from Microids, another game studio in Montreal that we'd acquired, um, and a couple of the key programmers from from Chaos Theory and the original Splinter Cell, um, and um, Jonathan Morin, who was the who was the ended up being the lead level designer, who'd come from um, a couple internal projects that you that yeah didn't ship. Sure. Um, and Pierre Rave, who was the lead game designer on Chaos Theory, who worked really closely with me. So we had this pretty cool group of people. Yeah. And um, at that point, we didn't even know because Far Cry Instincts had you know had a couple challenges getting going and they didn't they didn't know at that point whether you were going to have mutant powers or whether there would be trigens in the console version of far cry yeah so we're like okay well we're gonna we're not so in a sense we inherited the name yeah and it was up to us to determine what that name meant because we were going to be the ones who would establish it for the for the future of the franchise right? right And because, partly because they didn't know what was going to happen with the console versions they were making because they hadn't locked anything down yet. And, and you know, we didn't inherit some need to have mutants or some need to have anything else. And, you know, we came up with a, like half a dozen sort of pillars of the, of the brand that we thought were most important. And, 
and you know um and it turned out that having mutants and monsters wasn't one of them like it just didn't it wasn't central yeah um it, all the stuff that gamers connected to was the stuff early yeah. in the game where it was you yes. and very open-ended environments yeah. and and encounters and camps and yeah, yeah that you could approach from any number of angles and yeah, yeah it's just like dudes and yep. etc um similarly the stuff they connected with in crisis before right. alien monsters showed up right. um so yeah I, I assume that kind of as gamers you know or as end users your interpretation of the the brand right came from that same place yeah and and then and then the main thing that we struggled with and we struggled with it for for many weeks was um, we didn't want to go to a tropical island because, you know, we knew that all of the Far Cry sort of sequels on console were going to be on tropical islands. Mm. And we also strongly suspected that Crytek was going to be making something on a tropical island. And it's like, why why not just get away from that? Why not go somewhere that's unique to the brand but, like, is still part of the brand? And, and you know, we talked about... Every, I mean, we talked about everything from, like, fucking Mars to like the Arctic to like I mean everything, right? Yeah. And it was it was Alex Amancio who who first started pushing for Africa. And at first I didn't get it and no one else got it. You know, the first couple times he mentioned it, it just kinda of fell flat in the room like no one even heard what he said. Um but then, you know, he kept coming <laughs> back with it every now and then and, and then a couple times he made a stronger push for it and brought out, you know, the iconic acacia tree in the field with the orange sun behind it and, you know, the silhouette of a of a zebra or something in the background and which ended up being the animated logo <laughs> sure. for the Dunia yeah. engine I'm pretty sure and you start yeah you start once once it gets it gets its hooks in you it's pretty it's pretty compelling there's a lot of um there's a lot of it's very rich well it's interesting because you know like moment to moment i think something is that about it is that on some level it's a very mundane game there isn't there isn't there aren't a lot of big, epic images. You know, like, mm-hmm. it's not like, you're not like climbing Kilimanjaro or anything, right? right? It's right. it's there's no it's nuclear these, weapons. Yeah, it's yeah. it's ramshackle villages and dirt roads and stuff. But mm-hmm. then there will be moments where you know what I think is really striking is when all the aspects of the environmental simulation, like the day night cycle and the lighting engine. It was one of the first games that had like light rays that were really convincing, um, that were actually like not just baked in that, right. you know, um, and you would just, it would take whatever mundane place you're in, you know, it's like you're standing on the edge of a crappy little lake and there's some trees, but then the sun starts coming up and the light rays come through the, the, the branches and, and leaves and, it is really cool how the circumstances can make what's otherwise like a conceptually unimpressive piece of geometry just feel really majestic and mm-hmm. really like um, just just compelling. You know, like it, it lends that sense of place and that sense mm-hmm. of time, where yep. it's like, oh, this this time of day I recognize, and right. it lends this 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 like gravity to 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 the place that you know half an hour ago I was driving a jeep through it. You know, right. and um, Yep. It seems like it would have taken a lot of a lot of faith in the premise and the component pieces to rely on that because just knowing as much about game dev as I do, I imagine that all that shit didn't really come together in that form until pretty late, though I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, we had we had early prototypes that were um 
that were convincing, but of course, like late in development, even when we were looking back at like early screenshots of our environment, it was, it was like, I mean, it was hideous, like, like, uh, like Morrowind, like, like more hideous than Morrowind because it didn't have any of the interesting alien stuff, not alien, right. but like, like it didn't have giant fantasy fleas stuff. Walking yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was like Morrowind, but without, any, it was basically a height feat. Like at one point our grass was just sprites that were dropped down like, and for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, but then the grass simulation started to come in, the weather simulation started to come in, like, you know, all of the work that went into just editing the, the file that, um, colors the sky was just, it was an insane amount of work. Um, uh, the sun going in the, the cycles of the moon and the, the tree simulation, obviously, you know, from that core group of eight of us or whatever, um, one of the guys, uh, André Beauchamp was uh, was just a just a he was a graphics programmer and and he was basically in these high level conceptual meetings with us waiting until we could and I'm, I'm not trying to trivialize what he did at all but waiting for us to go here's this piece of tech that we're 95% confident we need and once we hit trees he was just like I think I'm going to go work on trees and then he just disappeared. And like 18 months later, like you could press a button and a forest would grow. Yeah. It was fucking amazing. Yeah. Was, I mean, we saw many iterations of it over yeah. the time, but, but I mean, I still remember like, watch this click and just like all different <laughs> kinds of trees just growing out of the savannah, like right in front of your eyes. It was just like, and all simulated in the wind and like machine gun, the branches all fall apart and yeah. like catches fire and burning branches fall in the grass. It's just like, what? what the fuck it yeah. was amazing right um and fantastic. so once all those pieces yeah. started to land i mean what we had in the beginning was this was a simulation with some ai in it and some vehicles and some weapons and like everything was very static and brown and and i mean it looked beautiful at the time compared to morrowind six months before or a year two years before we shipped it but then as all of the layers started to drop in it just became like shocking um and i think you know there's 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 no there's no spectacle really in the game right it's it's um we did really count on um the sort of rich analogness of of the weather and the vegetation and the the light and the and the wind and all of these things being interconnected to make something that you hadn't seen before and that was richly interactive as well, right? Yeah. <coughs> and there I mean, was a, a lot of... It is a very dynamic... Like, it, in, in the ways that you're talking about, especially, right. it's like everything from AIs that will drive their Jeeps around and, and stuff on their own down to, yeah, like, you shoot that branch and it falls off and that yep. isn't just a static tree. Right. It, you know, it, it all reacts to yep. the player. Yep. Um was kind of a defining aspect of like every component of the of the game. Yep. And yeah. yeah, I mean and we really we really pushed for that. I mean it was just an extension of making sure every keypad is hackable in Splinter Cell. It's just yeah. making sure everything is simulated as 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 equivalent as equivalently as we can make it. And right. That was sort of a philosophy that we had was that we should try to simulate to the greatest extent possible everything to the same level of fidelity not not try to simulate some part to the high to the highest level that we could and the other parts to make them static it was like let's try to raise raise the whole sea to the same level and yeah. and i i feel like it paid off because i feel like the 
the sense of place, um, even for a place that's very that's very mundane in a lot of ways, um, is really really powerful. And and that having the sense of place and the sense of the of the environment be so strong, I I feel like makes the makes the the counterposition of the the kind of violence that happens in it much more shocking like like there's you don't blow people up in any more shocking way than you do in any other game it's just when it's when you have these long periods of silence where you might have stopped on the, the side of a rock and listened to the water trickling and like as the sun was setting behind a tree for a few minutes you get this strange sense of peace and like, ah, oh, the world is beautiful and things aren't all that bad. And then seven seconds later, you're burning a guy alive with a Molotov cocktail while he's screaming and flailing around in a brush fire. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's this, it's just juxtaposition of these things that, and without being authored or without being scripted, um, it really, it can mess with your, your emotions. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a, <clears throat> it's a method of actually having real, contrast you know within within the space and i mean i think it's something that is um valuable about a lot of open world games generally Mm -hmm. i mean i do get when i play like a grand theft auto game i get that same weird feeling of like you're just walking around in fake central park it's just like people are just walking around and they have their coffee cups it's so normal it's weird Mm -hmm. and then you walk out of the park and jump in a car and ramp it off the edge of a building (laughs) you know like the, the the fact that there is downtime but it's not necessarily like designer enforced downtime it's like i think i just want to step back and not be in the middle of chaos for a little bit and then that can happen yeah um i think uh, yeah i think that you're right it's really valuable and that i mean there were a lot of like side quests and stuff like that you know you could do the assassination missions and you had to do the convoy missions to get more weapons and everything but there were also these sort of non like yeah non unauthored hooks to right. to say maybe you should just chill out for, for a minute right. you know i mean yeah. there's if you look there's value in doing something aside from going to the next mission right. objective yeah i mean we just tried to i mean try to like build a system that that um is interesting when it's when it's chaotic and then just try to pull the pull the player into that chaos using different, literally pull him in or give him opportunities to pull himself in and right. different ways to get in the path of of the chaos machine that lives underneath it all and yeah. you know because that's where the that's where the gameplay was right yeah yeah so i think that that something that came across to me and i'll be honest it was something that i found that that pushed me away from the game to some degree like after an extended period of time is my read, and and maybe this doesn't match your intent at all, but I felt like there was... It wasn't a message game, and it wasn't an agenda game, really, but I did feel like, and I mean, obviously, starting with, like, Nietzsche quotes and everything kind of points at this, but I felt like it was very, like, nihilistic by the, by the end. Right. Um, was that something that you wanted to express or that just kind of developed or is that just not even a read that you intended um yeah i don't i mean i mean let's not talk about what i intended let's talk about how i feel about it like, sure i feel like um i don't feel it's nihilistic i feel it's kind of hopeful but i also feel it's um um 
you know, one of the things that, that I struggle with and that I um, had a hard time with when I was doing all the research for this, including, you know, reading a lot of pretty dark, horrible history of, of you know, stuff about Uganda and Idi Amin and, and, and you know, Rwanda and places like that. Yeah. Um, is um, this idea of, and I, and I totally get, I totally understand intellectually, like, you, we we are not, uh, you know, cultural paternalism is terrible, right? Colonialism is bad, and we sh- we shouldn't be intervening in other people's problems to save the poor poor people from themselves. That's terrible. Um, at the same time, like um, you know, reading about um, you know reading about General Dallaire and having having this feeling that you know millions of people are getting killed. Um, because we can't intervene because, you know, the life of one American soldier is worth 10,000 Rwandan lives is like, it makes you want to fucking puke and it makes you want to kill everybody. Like, it's just terrible. It makes you feel like, fuck, human beings just shouldn't be on this fucking planet. It's so gross. And um, so, you know, I was trying to, I, we, I don't know, we all were, were interested in this idea of like, of what do you do? Like, what do you do when you're confronted by this? You can't just sit back and watch it. Uh, you can't sit back and watch people get murdered on mass because colonialism is bad, right? Like, like it's kind of a no-win situation, right? So we tried to paint this story of, of the jackal as a guy <clears throat> who, who does the, you know, he does the, he does the Yojimbo thing. He does the, the, you know the the Clint Eastwood thing. He just yeah. decides to to play both sides to ju- yeah play both other, sides yeah. against each other and and kill all kill all of the bad men and and damn himself in the process. And you know there's kind of a, in the sense there's kind of a clean ending to it because all of the innocent people escape. And, right. And and so and we, a can, we can we can yeah role so you have in that but sure and so there's still kind of a kind of a fairy tale ending to it if you want to be cynical about it i don't at the end of the day i don't think there is a solution i don't think there are right answers to these questions right and i think um i think that it was just important to us it was uh, i won't speak for anyone else it was important to me that we be able to at least try to like look at questions like this in our medium like if if we can't do it what's the fucking point like just go write a book like um and you know it's not like it's not like um, your average Hollywood movie about this material is is so ingenious either. Like at best, it confronts the problem that there are no good solutions. So right. like, so so did we, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, the 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 place that feeling came from was that you know the game is is very long series of um, of of these missions, and then every time you take a mission, your buddy can call you and say, "Hey, do." even more mission uh, and I'll I'll be happier with you. Right. And it seemed like in almost every situation maybe it was actually like a rule you guys had internally that in every mission it was like the quest giver wants you to do something that is at best morally questionable. At best, and, yeah. And your and your buddy wants you to do something that's just definitely worse. Right. <laughs> and and I and and so after doing that for enough I'm like every time I take a mission I'm just going to do something at least somewhat awful and Mm -hmm. then if i want to do more gameplay and get my numbers up uh 
then these awful people that only ever want you to do something even worse, I have to do what they say. And it felt like there was, and I mean, again, I'm not saying this is invalid, but um, it was one of those things where it was like a damned if you do, damned if you don't yep. kind of thing. And like every, there, there is no good answer. But for me as a, as a player being inside of that pattern for long enough, I mean, maybe it says more about the player than anybody, but it, it did give me that feeling of like, I sh- why don't I just give up? Like there is like mm-hmm. why do I keep sure. doing this yep. this stuff? Yeah, like lot, I can't make did. anything better, yeah, right? A lot of people did. They're just like this game is just too dark for me. It's like you're 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 exactly right. I mean, you were a bad person doing bad things for other bad people, and you can escalate those things and do them worse and do them worse and worse and worse and keep doing stuff that's bad. Um the only the only good stuff that you do in the game ostensibly is basically get like exit, exit visas for, the, yeah. for people that give you medicine so that you can keep doing bad stuff right, right. you're not a, you're not a good person you know you choose you choose your character from one of the buddies um for a reason and those buddies you know while while some of them have um you know motivations that are questionable like you say at best questionable um, their means and their their approach are really, you know, I mean, they're they're mercenaries. They're yeah, mercenaries are not good people. Um, um, so you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want you to be a big hero that's there to save everyone. The, like I said, the, the the person who has the change of conscience and decides to save everyone is is the jackal, right? He's the yeah. one who makes the decision to try to save everyone by by basically like killing everyone who's armed yeah. and letting everyone who's not armed out somehow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, that's about the best outcome that there is. And the, the sort of idea in the design is that you is that you progress through the systems of the game, getting more and more powerful by being more and more wicked until such a time as the people that are providing you with medicine, which is sort of one of the pillars of your power, like turn against you and cut you off. And at which point you just have to rely on the fact that you're hated and feared enough that you can sort of, um, like a mad dog, push your way through to the end. Yeah. Um, at which point you, <laughs> you you don't get out anyway. So <laughs> I think my guy did. Well, yeah. There's there's some. It's funny. I was I, so I just finished it. I finished it actually for the first time since it shipped. Um, just a, like a month or so ago. Wow. I had a game that was ongoing for for four years <laughs> i was playing it on infamous and it's really fucking hard oh, yeah. right um it's already pretty but, um, hard so i took the i took the ending where you go across the border with the diamonds because um uh because people had been telling me that it ends with a gunshot and because hmm. you know when you meet the jackal in the room and he's pouring the gasoline on everything he hands you a gun and, and he says one of us is going to take these diamonds in this gun and shoot themselves in the head when they get across the border. The other one's going to go and blow up the thing. Spoilers. <laughs> and, um, and so yes, it does in fact end after you go through the border with a, with a sort of muffled distant thing that could probably be a gunshot. And I don't honestly even remember whether that was our intention or what, but, but anyways, you don't see yourself doing yourself in. And yeah. It was certainly intended. We wanted it to be open ended, right? Yeah, yeah, um, I, yeah. Because I don't think I don't remember reading that aspect of it when I finished it. I thought it. I mean, my read anyway was just like self sacrifice versus self interest. You know, right. where so and, and from my point of view, I was like, well, I've been shitty enough this whole time. I've gone through enough stuff. 
if you want to go blow yourself up, go for it. Right. <laughs> I think I'm going to get it on a plane. Right. Um, but it's interesting to have the alternate read of sort of this honorable resolution right. in, in a way. Right. Because, um, yeah, it's the, the whole game is very unforgiving and uncompromising, like towards the player in, in yeah. a lot of ways. And I thought that, you know, I was, when when the game... I think when I was, it might have been when I was reading about the game before it came out, or when it first came out and I played it, I was like, okay, this is, you know, there are clearly a lot of a lot of things here that are inspired by, like, immersive sims. You know, like, somebody likes System Shock 2 kind of thing. And, and I was really, I was like, good God, out of all of the things that they decided to hold on to from that weapon degradation you know like like there's some that that's something that that's one of the things i found most surprising about the game was that the design decisions that did not end up being censored even though they are very like you know a lot of players find them expressly frustrating but obviously they also lent a, a very specific like feel to your your position in that world so like what was it what was it like internally was were those things like you know cars breaking down and and weapons breaking and you having malaria so that you fall over and have to go get medicine and you don't have a choice to go do your, your mission right now because otherwise you'll you'll die from the, the malaria mm-hmm. and everything was that stuff that was like really early on part of the the experience did you have to fight for that stuff or um, most of it was part of the experience early on and um, yeah we all we had to fight for for all of it all the time <laughs> um, and. Um, you know, to to Ubisoft's credit, like Ubisoft is really, really believes in the idea that um, it's what they call the game system story. It's that the progression of the systems in the game have tell a story. They reveal um, information about who you are or whatever. Um, well, that's and, great. I mean, from a high <coughs> level, that's a great yeah, thing to be conscious absolutely. of. Yeah, sure. absolutely. And, and so, you know, we were able to articulate it to them. And, you know, they were they were rightly concerned that these things had to be tuned very carefully and blah, blah, blah. And quite frankly, you know, from... And it's been a long time since I read any comments about it, but the majority of people who who gave up on the game did so within the first hour. And, yeah, you do have a gun that jams all the time in the first hour. And, you know, I mean, I still remember people saying, oh, yeah, it's not really an open world because if you if you drive anywhere besides where they tell you to go, you get an instant game over. And so what that means is that they were still playing the tutorial before you've been given medicine and right. so they gave up in the first hour of the game yeah um and you know that that sucks you know bad yeah. for us we should have done even more to try to get people through that first hour um so that they could learn this stuff but i mean really um it's not it's not a burden for you to get functional weapons very early in the game and yeah. to be able to rely on them um and you know and we it's not like we just spat spat this out like we we did have a lot of pressure on us to tune it and balance it and make sure that you know that if you put a minimal amount of effort into it you would you would not have to deal with a great deal of weapon malfunction but but that it would still be there from time to time and uh, or you you know you'd you know you'd take a submachine gun on a mission and you wouldn't find anybody with a submachine gun so you'd pick up an enemy weapon which is always going to have a much lower reliability and that you'd have yeah. to deal with the consequences of that for a few minutes until you can get somewhere where you could solve the problem and so you know there was a lot of internal confidence like from everyone that not only were we were we telling a story but it was leading to interesting 
really engaging, you know, gameplay climaxes yeah. um, that we weren't authoring that were happening systemically, and and that you know that it was that it was a it was a valuable approach. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's one of those things where when you when you really do invest in systematizing everything, because I can think of weapon jam moments in movies that are really cool and never like sure like it's it it the the business and the understanding of what what maintaining the equipment means of the scene in no country for old men where he swims across the river and then has to like blow out the chamber of yep, the, sure. the and you know rechamber yep. around and everything and etc like that is is it has a lot of impact and the fact that it is something that emerges possibly at the very worst time, mm-hmm. you know, um, or possibly at a time that is recoverable but adds drama to, you know, mm-hmm. like, because it could be a guy jumps out at you and you try to shoot your shotgun and it doesn't work. It could be you've lined up a great sniper shot and you jam and <laughs> like, yeah. fuck, and, you, and, and like that stuff is, is really interesting and it, I think, so something that you talked about in one of your talks um, was about, like, player improvisation and adaptation. Right. I think that's what a lot of that stuff encouraged, was saying yeah. you don't have a foolproof plan where it's like, okay, I've got 20 shotgun rounds, I'm going to unload them all into these guys and then walk away right. because, yep. oh, halfway through, that shotgun shell got jammed in the in the yep. chamber and I've got to... Yep. Right? Yep. Um, which... Which yeah, really seems to emphasize like the the role of the unpredictability mm-hmm. of of systems to yep. the player. Yeah, and I think you know, like I said in that in the improvisation talk, like as we were getting deeper and deeper, and, you know, another thing that was working in our favor, you know, when people were questioning on this stuff was like, yeah, but you know, that crazy thing that where you had all that fun, where that giant field was on fire, and like, and then you had to run back there, and then you know that dude came up and crashed his truck trying to get out of the fire, and you got on the machine gun and killed those guys. Like all of that happened because your shotgun jammed and you ran behind that thing, and when they were shooting at you, they hit that barrel. Right. That's what started the fire. That's what caused the guy to swerve his truck out of control and crash it. That's what allowed you to kill him and get in the back and use the machine gun. Yeah. So all of that cool shit that you did would be instantly gone if your shotgun hadn't jammed and your plan had gone off without a hitch. Yeah. And so, so you know, once people started to see the cascading effects of, of some of the potential of this stuff, like that's admittedly, again, we had to tune it and we spent so much time and effort trying to tune away the frustration, make it predictable so that you'd be able to tell, like looking at your gun, like this thing's getting grindy and it's not going to, I need to swap it out or I need to find something else. Like, So part of the, the, the whole thing about, about all the, all the aspects of the game being, being systematized is that you have this, this buddy system there are these AI friends that help you out or need your help um, in different parts. And I think that something that really emphasizes that it's that it's it's a, a a full system, you know, is that you don't play as a protagonist, you know, a named person mm-hmm. from from square one right. in Far Cry two. It's like all of your buddies, they're this cast of characters and you pick one at the yep. beginning. Yeah. Um and it led to what, at least to me, uh, ended up feeling like a very 
complex system of of how you you know manage your relationships with the other with your best buddy and, and right. secondary buddy and stuff um but like it's it seems like a really um unique approach to say like you're not going to be a totally anonymous cipher and you're not going to be an individual so where did this the idea for this like cast of potential playable characters come from so um so it's funny when There it goes. All right. Sorry about that. Okay. All right. So I'm going to start you over. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, being being one of this cast of potential protagonists, like how did that come about in the first place? So um, the fact that you could be any one of the buddy characters was a consequence of the system we designed. The system that we designed was not a consequence of us wanting to be one of multiple characters. Um, we wanted... When we first set out, you know, we were really interested in this idea of, like, of, you know, consequential action and the idea that, you know, characters that you invest in might die in the course of the game, but not because it was written that way in the story. And, you know, this raises all these questions of, like, how involved can a character be in the gameplay if they could die, you know, at halfway through the game? And, like, how do you carry the plot on with the character being involved the rest of the way through? And it's like, well, you need to replace them. And so you need to have another character that you would then introduce. And how many, how many, what if you can kill them, that person, like, ten seconds later? And, like, how how do you design the game in such a way that you can have meaningful characters that you build a relationship and an investment in that are all uniquely modeled and they're not just randomly generated from some character modeler because we weren't going to have that technology um, and that they'd have speaking parts and stories that yeah. go with them and they all that stuff. accent and all that kind of stuff, yeah. And, and so, you know, that would be simulated to the same level of fidelity as all the rest of the characters in the yeah. game. Um, how would you how would you build that and how many characters would you need and we went through this long process of basically trying to support the idea that you would have these sort of sidekicks that ended up being called your buddies and that they would be able to die over the course of the game and that you'd build relationships with them by working with them and by them working with you and helping you you know do missions in interesting ways and get good stuff and that you know sometimes one of them would just get killed and there'd be nothing that you could do about it uh, except for reload the game and go back far enough that, that that you could maybe try to avoid it but we sort of hope that people would play through it and uh you know there was a ton of like working out how the logic of the game would flow and it's in in large part that's the reason why this the main story missions like the the 12 main faction missions plus the sort of major chapter climax thingies like the 18 or 20 missions or whatever it is total that's the main reason why they're very mechanical yeah is because there's because they're ultimately governing all the logic of how we're able to know when buddies are available to show up and all of this stuff so it it was very complicated problem under the hood um, and all of it intimately tied to like how much recording costs like (laughs) so it's really like we had to build out the possibility space and at one point there was i think you know 14 or 16 buddy characters and like um you know probably four times as much dialogue and yeah we ended up having to cut parts off and like create 
special gates that would protect certain things and make sure that there was always a buddy alive. So there are scenarios you can end up in where you don't have a buddy to rescue you that aren't that uncommon, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so like trying to basically pare it down to what was a feasible set of how many characters we can have and how much dialogue they have to be able to deliver since any of them could be in any mission and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so that we would be able to deliver on that goal of like investing in a relationship with another character who's central to the plot who can then die yeah. or, or in the end who can then betray you or whatever. Right. Um, so we wanted to build those things and those reversals and, and get players to care about that. But it was a huge investment and it was a, an enormously difficult technical problem. Um, yeah. And so that, and, and then, as I said, you being able to choose one of them was just like, Oh, yeah, we get that for free. Yeah. So I mean, you had to make uh, unique arms for each of them. Yes, I guess. We, did. we had to make unique arms for each. <laughs> and of them. I guess That's legs. Right. Did everybody have different legs? Because you could. Yeah, they all had different legs too. Legs I mean, stuff. I think there were I think there were three sets of legs or something, oh, okay. or four. And but the boots. I mean, it was pretty easy to make the. You know, make sure that Warren has these boots, but it's the same pair of pants with a different shader for this right. guy or whatever. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of optimization that went in that yeah. allowed us to do that. But yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was. I enjoyed just that. You you could tell which character you were from the from, from the arms. player arms, like yeah. you know, because like the, the 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 Middle Eastern guy had like gloves on, mm-hmm. you know, and then other characters had tattoos, and all, yep. you know, and like I thought that stuff was yep. was was fun, you yep. know, like because you you felt immediately like your choice, which at the beginning it's a totally uninformed choice, and there is no statistical yep. difference or, or nope. anything. But you've you said I think that the IRA guy is cool, and now you have like a big Celtic cross on your arm or yep. whatever, and, and uh, green sleeves. And, yeah. <laughs> um. So, so yeah. Um, so so yeah, just like on a dorky, like technical level, I guess you guys just tuned it. So in the worst case scenario you would be on your last buddy on the last mission so that like could you exhaust your buddies very early i imagine the answer is no no you can't um um we like at every point in the game there's a minimum number of buddies that you're allowed to have that you must have or you'll be sent to get one and a maximum number of buddies that you can have so we won't put more out into the world um, oh right because sometimes you rescue you 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 introduce new ones by going to a They've they've been captured and so forth. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right, right. And so as you as you move your way through like the first act and you're moving towards the climax where you end up killing one of the warlords and then all of that mixing up and getting thrown out the, the desert and coming back and killing yeah. the other one and all that mess. Like there's a certain number of buddies that are required to get there, and if you and I think it's much harder to do in the first act than the second. If you dip to that minimum number, you will just stop getting rescues from buddies. Like, they just won't be available to come and rescue you if you get if you get critically wounded and then yeah. you just die and you have to reload. Um, and it's I think that's a very hard state to get in. I mean, it's very easy because all you have to do is, like, bring three buddies out on a mission and shoot them in the head and then you're done. But, right. I mean, it's very hard to get to through the normal course of playing yeah. as if you want them to be alive. Um, it's much easier to do in the second act. And, in fact, even in my playthrough on Infamous, I went through the last... Um, maybe even the last like third of the second act without without a buddy rescue it was super hardcore yeah. <laughs> um, and frustrating I, I even admit like because on infamous you just 
Yeah. What's that whistling sound? Oh, fuck, it's a mortar. <laughs> like, reload. <laughs> the, something, something... Or pop, 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 pop. That sound of the, the 20, 20 millimeter gun on the boats or whatever. Yeah. Like, pop, 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 pop. <laughs> something that, that I found really... That was, it was fun. Uh, the first time I finished the game... Because, um, yeah, if you, if you try to play all of the content, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. And the first time I finished the game, it was actually me and Chris Remo, and we like hot seated it because I I knew I was in the back half, and I knew I was like I gotta be getting near to the end, and so like he would play a mission, and then we'd hand back, and I would play a mission, and we basically so you were buddies, yeah, we we we, we used the buddy system <laughs> right to get on. through the 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 end of the game, and That's it was cool. it was really cool, and because it, it's one of those games because it can be so surprising, it really benefits from an audience, you know, sure. from having somebody yep. else there that can kind of confirm, like, well, that was fucking yeah, crazy. Yeah. You know? It's a fun um, game to watch, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that it's great when... Because co-op is co-op. Like, actual co-op yeah. is its own thing. But having a game where it's actually really enjoyable just for you and your friend to be sitting there and one of you is driving and, and you're both kind of, like, talking about it or saying go over there. Or, yeah. I don't know. That, that stuff, it has its own appeal. And I don't think... I think there... I don't think that there are a lot of games that really lend themselves well to that. I know that that one of the classic examples, which seems like it wouldn't be a good fit, but it is, is like old school like LucasArts adventure games and stuff. Oh, like really? if you were a kid playing through it for the first hmm. time, because the puzzles are hard and you don't know where everything is, and there's a ton of, oh, you should go check the upstairs. Maybe you right. have to push right. the bed around. You know, and like coming up with theories and testing them. And right. when somebody suggests something and it is the answer, it's like, right. yeah, you know. Yeah. They're funny, so you laugh at a joke together and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, that's the opposite of a highly systemic, highly emergent, like, surprising game, which has its own kind of humor and um, an engagement that, that I think multiple people can yep. can enjoy at the same time. It's just, yep. they're, they're on two very different poles, but... Yeah, but I think, so, I mean, I think... I remember, the, like, the first time I ever played GTA 3, and I think a lot of people have a very similar experience. It's going over to a friend's house, and they're like, you haven't seen this game yet? And they give you a controller, and then you play, and you don't really know what's going on, and you don't know how to get a mission, and what am I supposed to do? And I'm being shot at by cops and running over people on the sidewalk, and this is mental. Yeah. And then they take it over. They, you get killed, and then they take it, and then they're doing jumps and collecting packages, and you're like, what's that? What's Oh, my God, nah, look yeah. at the crazy stuff that's happening. You're in a fire truck? That's incredible. <laughs> like... No, when I get in a taxi, I can pick people up. Yeah, and totally. The taxi is yeah. like, yeah. So, and, I mean, there's, you know, it's just such a, GTA 3 is just such a fun game to play with. Yeah. That, that it's fun to watch people play with it. Yeah. Like, it's... Something that, I mean, this is a total tangent, but I think something that is easy to forget is that GTA 3, I think, I mean, it had TV commercials and stuff, but it was actually kind of a sleeper hit. Like, I didn't, I didn't hear of it until it came out and reviews were really good. And, right. And every, like you were saying, everybody was like, you have to play this. Yeah. And it... It became something without, you know, now now it's so established that yeah. it's a totally different set of expectations people yeah. have. But it was just a really surprising yep. game um, yep. and interesting for, for those reasons in, what, the year 2001 or whenever, yeah. whenever it came out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's the, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of podcast has been racked up regarding Far Cry 2 at least by 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 my friends and and myself um but I mean is it do you get that feeling is it um tangible to you that 
that game has kind of endured, you know? Like, what's your experience of, of the the years in since that, that game came out? I mean, um, I mean, it's, uh, flattering isn't the word, but that's sort of what I mean. Like, it's, I'm very proud of the fact that, um, that people care about it in the ways that we hoped they would. Um, um, even if maybe there aren't as many of them as we'd hoped. Um, I kind of feel like, um, that the people who, um, the people who care about the game care, care about it for what I think are the right reasons. Um, you know, they may not see it the same way I see it or think the same things about it are good that I think or whatever, but, but I mean, I think they care about, they care about the, the opportunities for emergent gameplay. They care that the game, like you said earlier, uh, it, it's, it never lets you rest or it's very unforgiving or something like that. The, the, the game never quite lets you be comfortable and it's always pushing back at you and, and twisting you into trying new things. It's, you know, it, it, it's a game that you, I think it's a game that you legitimately have to be skilled at in order to get enjoyment from and that um that's something that's not that common anymore um and i think that um it also had some some more so than average some mature themes that in it and it takes itself seriously but it doesn't take itself i don't think too seriously um i hope um and i think it you know, I'm glad to see that people care about that stuff. And and at the same time, they're not fanboys of it. They're critical of it. And they see that it's got weaknesses and flaws and that it under delivers in a lot of different ways and misses its mark in a lot of other ways. Like I'm not, these aren't things that, these aren't things that bother me. Like yeah. we, we, you know, we, we tried our best to do what we thought we needed to do. And, you know, we had some successes and some failures. And, and there have been some, some, some like mods that have come out. Like mm-hmm. there's at least one really, really popular mod that sort of, is a fan's take of, oh, if it was balanced to be, whatever, more realistic or, you know, rebalancing the repop rates and, and that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And so, obviously, people really care right? because, like, they're like, I see potential and I'm picturing it being more like this. And right. they actually, whatever, get out the fucking hex editor. And yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't work, know how they do is, it, but... Which yeah. is really cool. Yeah, it is cool. Um, obviously, it's it's always amazing when you see people, you know, carrying your, your game on after you and like doing great stuff with it um and invested in it and and deeply and i think you know i think at the end of the day um um i think it's important to make games that really involve people deeply and and because i think there are so many more games coming out that are really just i feel i feel that's my opinion that are just meant to be you know, enjoyed for the two weeks until the next mega hit comes out and then kind of they sit on a shelf and disappear or get sent back to GameStop or whatever. And it's like, you know, I'd rather... I, I'm just more interested in games that people get passionate about. Even if it's a small number of people, they get really, really passionate about it and there's this little community that continues on and keeps engaging with the game, you know, long past its its what would normally be considered its time. Right. Um Passage shelf date. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's very flattering that we've created one of those to, to some extent, right? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, one last question. One time on Twitter, it was kind of a throwaway response, but 
you said that at some point in a design document you were supposed to be able to like pet the zebras <laughs> and the animals in Far Cry 2. Is that actually true? It's actually true. Good. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. <laughs> did, did that come from like, we're going to do these hand interactions, what could we do? And that was one of them, or like... Um, no, it came from... Uh, at one point, there was a lot of concern about the violence against animals in the game, mm. and um, there were a number of different solutions. Which is um, totally, vol- which is like, to- in, totally, never, yes. never mandatory. Like, yeah. if you drive carefully yeah. and don't shoot at antelope, then yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Though sometimes they would run into your bumper. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, so, so there were a number of different attempts to try and. Um, to use the, the vocabulary I've already used to try and bring the simulation of animals up to the to the level of the rest of the simulation to yeah. the to the greatest extent that we could and you know frankly there it's just not there um, in the final game and so there was some concern that uh, that um, you know it was just a lot so a lot of playtesters were just running around shooting animals and laughing about it and mm. that made some people uncomfortable and it made us uncomfortable as devs too sure. so we came up with a lot of different plans to fix it and one of the, one of them was to try and you know make it so that the animals were that you could interact with them in ways and depending on how you played the game you could interact with animals which ultimately was probably a terrible idea um, in, interestingly you know in the end after exploring a number of design options mostly on paper little a little bit of prototyping maybe went into some things but not very much um you know i i finally made the argument that the best thing to do was to was to make the simulation boundary just really clear so like there was no you know there was times when people were like shooting animals and they were running away and not dying and then there's blood missing so we got to get blood and then it's like oh well we should be able to track the animals but the, then it starts to get demented and so it was finally just like fuck it like if an animal takes even one point of damage it just instantly dies if you touch it it instantly dies if it touches your vehicle it instantly dies yeah. and like and it doesn't bloody, die it and ragdoll right? it doesn't like you can't machine gun it around on the planes and make its legs flop all around and do stupid stuff and make it float in the water and be ridiculous yeah. like it just ragdolls and becomes not part of the simulation anymore. And guess yeah. what? It's really boring. And the yeah. effect the effect was that people who thought it was cool to shoot animals saw an animal, took a gun, shot it, it turned off, they ran over, tried to see what they could do with it, realized it was really boring, and then never did it again. Yeah. And and the and the the end. And in within the game's boundaries, a bullet <clears throat> was a lot more valuable than a yeah. dead zebra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And, and you know, it's, it's also like, it really had nothing to do with the themes that the game was about, like. Yeah, it was really just there to to make the, the environment, you know, feel more alive and whatever. Yeah. So it was like hunting animals was not didn't make any sense in the context of what we were trying to say, anyways. So yeah. so once once that went in, it was pretty clear that that was the that was solving the problem of people gleefully massacring animals right. because it was hilarious, um, and and keeping people on track with the experience we wanted them to have. So yeah, and unfortunately. Petting the zebras did not end up being a part of that. No, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it didn't. But that, I'll always dream. I, we, I remember when I wrote that document and I was pretty deep in it and I was just like, what, what am I writing? <laughs> people, people were reading and it's like, what the, what the fuck is it? You were writing this a great This guy idea. needs a vacation. You were <laughs> writing a wonderful idea for some game. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not, yeah. Maybe <laughs> for some other game, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me and taking so much time to talk through your... Uh, your back catalog. It yeah. was it was uh, it was a lot of fun. So thank you very much. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. It was yeah, a pleasure. Well, I'll uh, get to talk to you again soon. Cool. Right on. <laughs>